partner shares in the potentially outsized returns of a well-planned and executed investment, but as a passive investor and has the maximum leverage on their most precious asset, their time. And that is why we're here together. 90% of the millionaires out there built their net worth with real estate. However, 0% of the billionaires are hands-on managing the real estate assets because there simply isn't enough time. My name is Jake Wiley, and for the past 16 years, I've been investing in real estate, and I've learned a thing or two. But the most important lesson is how to leverage the expertise and time of others to maximize your investment potential. Welcome to the Limited Partner Podcast. All right, welcome, partners. This week, we've got another special solo cast episode, and we're going to talk about the magic of forced appreciation in commercial real estate. Um, I think that this will be a, a fun show. It's a really cool topic that it took me a while to really get my arms around, so I wanted to share it with you. But to get started, I'll give you a couple of updates on, you know, I guess me personally and what's going on. So I am recording this episode, so it is Friday before Labor Day weekend. So big, you know, three-day weekend planned. I've got four kids. My wife just took off to go to a wedding across the country. So it's just going to be me and the kids all weekend. So it's a little bit exciting and a little bit nerve wracking. Another update is my oldest is in sixth grade, started sixth grade. And one of the big things about moving into sixth grade was the opportunity to join the band. So we signed our son up, he's in the bands and it is way more involved that I thought it was going to be. The sales pitch, I think, when we were kind of going through the processes of parents and talking with our son about it, is, yeah, you know, you start in sixth grade, by the time you're in eighth grade, you'll be performing everywhere, like you'll understand reading music. But it really, for us as a parent, it feels like it's turning into a full-time gig. We've drove all over town trying to find equipment for him to rent. Um, then there's all the stuff you have to set up and there's like all this nuanced stuff that the school specifically wants. You've got music stands and then there's practice time after school. And then so many kids signed up for band that the instructor is saying, uh, uh, you know, there's more kids than we've ever had before. And if, you know, your child needs individual instruction, like we're just not gonna be able to do that here. So you might even have to get some I guess, third-party lessons or professional lessons outside of that. So band has become a really big thing in our house and, you know, I'm pulling my hair out a little bit. But anyway, I think we we're going to get through it. I'm excited about the weekend. You guys wish me luck. It's just me, four kids. I've got um, so an 11-year-old all the way down to six-year-olds and everything in between. So it's going to be fun. All right. Well, let's get back into what we actually came here for, right? Is to talk about forced appreciation. And it's really unique to commercial real estate. You may see, you know, people mention this in residential real estate, but it's definitely something that is more commercial aspect. So I think, you know, maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't. So when I started this podcast, I was advised to really niche deep. And I think forced appreciation is just that. So we're going to really dive into that here in a second. But I'll start, kind of go back in a time, like take you through my journey with this, right? So when I first got into real estate, I really thought there was two ways that you could invest. Either you go out and you buy rental real estate on your own, or you go invest in a REIT, which is a real estate investment trust. And that's basically a stock, right? So out there on the public market. So both of those are available to you as an individual at any point in time. But rental real estate, you, know, you go out, you buy a, a single, a duplex, all the way up to a fourplex is really considered residential real estate, not commercial. 
And that there's some important reasons why I bring that up. But let me tell you about a real estate investment trust so you understand what that is. So a real estate investment trust is a company that owns, operates, or finances income-producing properties. They generally generate like a steady source of income, you know, based on the rents and everything that's coming in from the properties. They're mostly publicly traded. So they're just kind of like stocks, but they're backed by physical assets, right? Real estate themselves. But because they're like stocks, they're pretty liquid. So if you need to get in and out of a REIT, you can do that pretty much at any point in time. They invest in just about every real estate type. So apartment buildings, cell towers, data centers, hotels, medical facilities, office, retail centers, warehouses, you name it. And like I said, those two options are available to everybody. So when I started 16 years ago, that's really what I thought. It's like, well, I can invest in a rental property or I can invest in a REIT. And to me, I just had no desire to invest in a REIT. I mean, for all intents and purposes, it felt like you're just investing in the stock market and just wasn't interesting to me. So I got into rental properties because I felt like I was in control. And if I was going to turn this thing into this big cash flow machine, you know, I could do that on my own because of all the skills I had. Now, I will tell you that on when you go out and you buy a rental property, you know, like a little single family, you know, the cash flow aspect of it's a bit of a myth. It's pitched, you know, if you go out and read books, and I, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and that's the one that got me into it. And again, I would never take my experience back, but you go out and you buy these books and you read the books and they tell you, you, know, you buy rental properties and you're, what you're doing is you're creating cash flow. So you, you buy one, you save up a little bit more, you go get another one, right? And you keep doing that until eventually you get enough cash flow that replaces your current work income and then you get to step out. But the reality is that when you have rental properties, yes, they may kick off cash flow, but it could be like, 100 200 bucks a month and that's not a whole lot of money but you know it's nothing to scoff at but what's really interesting and this is a point that i want to bring home this is personal stories for me i bought a fourteen thousand dollar property right dirt cheap the gentleman that owned it owned about 20 properties and he was like really on the decline and needed to get rid of his properties and this one hadn't been touched in a long time so i had to put another fourteen thousand dollars worth of repairs into it so bought it doubled the price but I'm all in this thing for $32,000, right? And you think, well, great, this is gonna kick off a lot of cash flow. The cash flow versus like the property cost was like so great. But here's the trick is that when you buy into these like cheaper properties, because one, they're easier to get into because of the lower dollar amounts, that doesn't change the fact that like a plumbing call costs the same, you know, like even your base air conditioners, like you can't go in there and say like, Oh, I've got a $400,000 house. Give me the $400,000 base, you know, air conditioning. Like they're the same, right? So you're going to be paying five, $6,000 for an air conditioning system, regardless of what you know, size property you've got. Well, I mean, obviously they can get bigger property taxes. You're paying insurance. Now you're paying insurance on the replacement value, right? So the insurance company is going to say like, well, if we have to rebuild this property, you know, you're all in it for $32,000. It's going to cost you at least 80 to rebuild. It's 800 square feet. Let's say it was probably, you know, hundred bucks a square foot back in those days. Those are good days, but still like you're paying insurance on that. You've got property taxes, like all of these things. And when you start adding them up, you know, any little issue on the property, you've got a couple of plumbing calls, an electrician, every handful of years, you got to replace some system, a roof, an air conditioner, cash flow is gone. I mean, that that's the reality of it. So that is something that took me a little while to learn and a little bit of stress. And yeah, you know, I had a couple of properties for 16 years and you'll probably hear this a lot over the show that I really, you know, I bought at a time and like, I just needed to continue to hold, you know, to kind of eventually work myself out of kind of this like cash flow hole that I built. But what I've found 
is that there is another option between a REIT and buying rental property. And it is really, truly passive income. It's hands-off. You get the appreciation that you don't really get in REITs like you own the property. And then there's the power of leverage. The other thing that you get, which is really nice about like when you buy a property, right? You go out and you put a loan on the property. So back in the day, you could you get a loan for like 80%. So don't you only needed to come up with equity for the other you know, 20%, right? So let's use simple numbers. I'm going to go buy a $100,000 home. I could get a loan for 80% of that. So $80,000. I only needed to have cash, $20,000 equity to get that house moving. Now, if you go buy a stock or a REIT, like you've got $20,000, you're putting that $20,000 to work and that is your equity. Like there really isn't a whole lot of leverage. You know, there might be some leverage in the portfolio, but that's kind of what you're up against. So in this new way, this is what I'm talking about here. It's generally only available for accredited investors, but it is investing in syndications, right? So you could, in, there's so many apartment complexes, drive down the road, they're probably owned, you know, some of them are owned by these just massive, you know, entities that own a bunch of multifamily. And then a lot of them are actually owned by syndicator operators. And these are guys that know the business inside and out. They've done a lot of work in the multifamily space, or it could be, you know, self-storage. It could be any of these things. And they identify a property and they say, okay, great. We're going to go to the bank and the bank's going to give them at this point in time, let's say 65% debt, right? So they need to come up with 35% in equity. Now, these are just normal people. Maybe they're running a business, but like when you start getting into the tens of millions, let's just call it a $10 million property. That means they've got to come up with three and a half million dollars worth of equity. Now, maybe they haven't, but in a lot of cases, when you start growing your business and you're acquiring more and more properties, like you have to bring in other equity investors. So that's what they do, create what's called a syndication. And that's basically pooling the resources of multiple investors to come together. And in this situation, they're the general partner. So they have basically all of the liability and then they bring in limited partners which coming in, they put their cash to work, right? So they put their cash to work. But again, like you're putting your cash to work, there's still debt on the property. So you get all the benefits of, you know, what we were talking about on the single family by being able to leverage it, but you don't have any of the headaches, right? So part of the investment process is we look at it, we look at this giant building, you know, it's got a hundred units in it. We pay $10 million for it. It's going to need air conditioners over time. It's going to need hot water heaters. It's going to be, all these things are factored into kind of the acquisition price of this building. There's a capital reserve. This is where the magic of forced appreciation comes in. So remember earlier in the episode, I was talking about there are anything that's kind of less than four units, right? So like we're talking about residential kind of real estate, four units. So a quadplex, you may have heard that's still considered residential. And then anything above that is really considered a commercial, but really you start kind of getting into larger numbers. This will really make sense. But when you buy and sell something that's deemed residential, the value of that property is not determined by how much cash flow that property is kicking off. It's really determined by the comps that are comparables, right? So if you've ever bought or sold a house, which you probably have, you know, when you're going to look to buy a house, you know, the agent goes out and they run quote unquote comps, right? And they tell you like, this is what the market looks like. And this is what you should expect to pay based on this amount of square footage. And when you're selling your house, you get the same thing. Like you have an expectation of what it's going to, your house is going to be worth based on what's sold in the neighborhood. And then when you go get financing, the bank sends an appraiser and the appraiser does the exact same thing. They go out and they look and they say, okay, well, what have these other houses that appear to be similar sold for in this particular neighborhood? And we'll make some adjustments based on, you know, certain factors, but that's it. And you might be thinking like, yeah, well, that's just how it works. 
forced appreciation occurs when a real estate investor proactively increases cash flow and property value by raising the rent to the market, right? So let's say you're buying a, a multifamily unit apartment complex and there's a building right next door, slightly better you know, units, just needs a little bit of renovation. And then there's a market rent increase possibility, right? There's additional opportunities for generating income. So like thinking about, you know, could you add laundry? Could you add little storage areas? Could you have preferred parking that's under a shed? Are there little garages out there that people can rent? All of these different things. So you add income to the property. And then that income basically improves the net operating income of this commercial operation. So the net operating income divided by what's called the cap rate gives you the value of the property, right? So that is what forced appreciation really gives you the ability to do is that if you can improve the net operating income of the property by either raising rents, you know, increasing the revenues or decreasing expenses. So, you know, good example, there's a lot of properties that have certain utilities that are master metered, right? So maybe all of the gas is paid for by you know, the owner of the building as opposed to the tenants. Well, maybe you can switch that into the tenants' names. And then like maybe the it decrease in the rents that you might give to the tenants for switching that out is not the same, right? It's not an offset. So you're decreasing expenses, you're raising revenues, the NOI goes up. So when we're looking at opportunities, and if you're looking for opportunities to get into you know, multifamily, which is kind of what we're talking about here, self-storage, um, commercial, office space, uh, even industrial, you know, most likely what you're looking for value add opportunities. And these are what the, like what I was telling you before, these seasoned pros that are really good about putting these deals together and they know how to run these things. They know how to make them very efficient. And, you know, you're in the market and they're in the market and they find a property that's got below market rents, renovation opportunities, amenity improvements, like other revenue sources, like I mentioned before, laundry, special parking, storage, and then reduction in costs. Maybe they've got their own property manager. Maybe they can bill out the utilities. These properties are turned every five to seven years in all real estate, you know, it has a little bit of wear and tear. So like even, you know, turning every five to seven years, when these properties come up for sale, there's generally opportunities to make that improvement. So I'm going to frame this up mathematically. Hopefully this will start to make sense is that if you have a cap rate of say 5%, so a cap rate is determined in the market itself, right? Like it's not, there's no like table for cap rates, but when you look at all of the sales, it's very similar to comps in a particular market, you get what's considered a cap rate. And the cap rate is the value of the property, what the property is sold for, divided by the net operating income. So when you have those numbers, you can actually determine the cap rate of that sale. And then you have this kind of general market knowledge of like, okay, we, we sold you know 100 units and the general cap rate in this market was say 5%. So when you're looking at a deal, an opportunity in that market, the way that you can kind of get your mind wrapped around the value of the property is to say, okay, if the general market is running at 5% and I know what the net operating income is, then I can derive, right? This is just algebra, the value of the property or like what I think my offer price is. And then when you have these professional investors that are looking at these deals, they can see where there's opportunity to improve the NOI. And this is like the magic, right? Is that if you're running at a 5% cap rate, that means that every dollar of improved net operating income 
the value of the property goes up by 20. It's a 20 fold increase, right? So, you know, 5% over hundred, right? That's 20. So that's really the math is that when you can find these opportunities and you can increase the cash flow and then turn around and decrease the expenses, you're driving the value of these properties way up. And there's a lot of times where there's been a mom and pop operator running this thing for forever, or the current owner has just, you know, the renovations were done in the nineties and they've just kind of run it and collected cash, but it really needs a full kind of upkeep in the apartment next door is charging rents that are 30, 40% higher. And like this happens all over the place where you can go in and you can systematically every lease turn, renovate that unit, put it back on the market for 30, 40%, a couple years, you're all of a sudden, you know, your entire rent roll has gone up by say 20%. That entire amount, you know, there's going to be some expenses that offset it, then turn around and go back into the value of the property. And that is what you can't do in residential real estate. Right. Because what they would look at is they would say, like, let's imagine we were able to do this full turn in one year. Right. They would look and say, oh, look, your building is actually a comp. Like you just sold this thing for a million dollars. Like it's a year later, you know, let's give it a little bump because of inflation. We'll call it, you know, $1.1 million. That's what it is. But if you're driving it off the cap rate and you've got a 20% increase, I mean, all of a sudden the value of this property could go way up. And it's not necessarily tied one-to-one because if any improvement, let's just say that your net operating income of this property was zero, right? And then you basically, somebody was giving this property away, you know, like if the next day you just get $1 out of this thing, now it's worth 20 bucks, right? The next day after that, you get $2 out of it right now. It's worth 40, right? You see how the math really works. There's a lot of strong potential here for you. So I just wanted to spend a few minutes talking about the value of forced depreciation and I am sure that maybe it was a little bit confusing. If you have any questions, please come back and ask me. You can hit me up at jake at limitedpartner.com or visit the website, shoot me a note. But if you're interested in learning more about different property types and strategies, head over to the website, thelimitedpartner.com. All of my episodes and interviews are posted. I've had tons of great conversations on multifamily, self-storage, mobile homes, even car washes. I hope this episode was eye-opening and fruitful for you as it took me a long time to fully appreciate the opportunity here. This is Jake Wiley. I'd love to get your questions and ideas for the future shows. and You can find me at thelimitedpartner.com. Thanks. We'll talk to you soon. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode, and I'd actually love for you to contribute to a future episode. If you have a question you'd like answered or a topic or a guest to bring on the show, please email me at jake at thelimitedpartner.com. Now I realize there's a lot of lingo that's thrown around on these shows, so I've created a cheat sheet for you with the top 26 terms that come up most often. Head on over to thelimitedpartner.com forward slash lingo for the list. Enjoy, and we'll see you next time.